0: Right, 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. One of the things we were always taught uh, when we were having lessons in hermeneutics at college, which is the interpretation of the Bible for purposes like this, for sermons or for Bible studies, is that we should never apologize for the text. We should always try, even with enormously challenging texts, to present them in a positive light. And I do hope that is what I'm going to do today, got to cope with technology but I couldn't resist starting with a quotation from the very famous priest and reformer Martin Luther let's see oh it works who commented on the reading that we've heard this morning saying this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant but I'm always up for a challenge and much as I would not want to argue with Luther I do think we can take an enormous amount of useful information from the passage, which can be relevant for us today. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the text, though, we'll just have a small recap of the context, a fair bit of which Andy introduced us to last week. The books of Peter are letters believed to have been written by the apostle Peter, and they are addressed to the exiles, God's chosen ones living in the diaspora, which is to say, dispersed groups of Christians living in small groups, small church groups, in Asia Minor. Oh, now it's going to be tricky. There we go. In Asia Minor, in present-day Turkey, that is, 2,000 years ago, to give them advice on how to live as exiles, as a minority religious group in the Roman Empire. And there are four main sections to today's reading. Firstly... Peter explained how Christians ought to behave towards one another. And that carries on as well from what Andy spoke about last week, about how husbands and wives ought to behave to one another. Um, Then secondly, there's a section on suffering and how as Christians they ought to react to it. And then the third and fourth sections are the really tricky and debated sections where Christ is proclaiming to the spirits in prison and then comparing the experience of Noah in the Old Testament with baptism for Christians. And as Sylvia said, if you'd like to follow along the reading as I go through, it's on page 1219 in your Bibles, 1219. Peter tells his readers or listeners that they must have certain attributes, certain ways of behaving. And they're translated in slightly different ways in different texts, but they include a unity of spirit or like-mindedness, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart or compassion and a humble mind. Now, the first one of those, like-mindedness, or it it could be translated as of one mind, is a suggestion that the Christians to whom Peter was writing were perhaps not all agreeing with each other all of the time. Who would have thought it? Christians who argue and disagree. Never. Two minutes in church social media would confirm that we've not really managed to move on terribly well from that particular issue today. It was something that worried Peter and I actually think it's something that should still worry us today because disagreements are often the bits that speak loudest to the people who aren't part of the community. Social media is a wonderful tool for communication. I know how often I use it myself to find out what's going on in the world, to read about news and actually especially about what people are up to in the wider Church of England. But it can also be a very difficult space to express nuance about beliefs especially where aspects of those beliefs can be hurtful to other people. Speaking as a woman, going into ordination in a church where not everyone accepts my ministry, I know how difficult it can be to have a, a, you know, a, a sensible discussion in a social media context. Some of the disagreements are far more minor. Uh, what, what the different candles on the Advent wreath symbolize or which car, that one's that one's a particularly heated one at this time of year. Which, which outfit colour we're wearing at any different time. Some people are in red right now, some people are about to go into purple, yes. It's, it's, it's very tense, very tense. But, more importantly, all anyone can see from the outside, those who aren't deeply involved in the minutiae of church discussions, is a group of people arguing about what's right and wrong and not agreeing on the rather important message of being united in living their lives in a righteous way and declaring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it made me think of the gospel of Mark, when Jesus is casting out a demon, and he tells the onlookers that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Peter wanted the church communities he was writing to to try to present a united front, to focus on the important stuff, not bicker amongst themselves. And as human beings with different life experiences, reading a text that has multiple translations and multiple interpretations, of course we're going to disagree. Of course we are. But we can disagree well. And we can find the areas of unity that we all have to share together. Which brings me on to Peter's next point, which is that we must love one another. And what does love look like here? You may well be aware that in Greek, there are a number of different words for love. I've put them into sort of english for you um, to explain love in different circumstances such as the love you might feel for your significant other for example this one here in verse eight is philos love which is one of the types of love that you might feel for your platonic friends or your siblings um, the, w- the whole word in greek in the text is philadelphoi adelphos is, is brother so uh, loving love for your brothers your siblings in more inclusive language Now, I have four siblings, whom I love very, very much. But I'm sure, over our many years together, we didn't always like each other all of the time. And uh, I think that's the love that Peter's trying to convey here in the text. Christians, newly in his context, are a family. And functional families argue. And maybe they don't always definitely like each other, but they do love each other. Contemporarily, in Roman society, that's actually beginning to be a bit countercultural, leaning towards our theme of beautiful resistance, actually. Romans need to look out for their blood relations and their households, but they, they didn't need to worry about everyone else who they were essentially in competition with. Peter is saying that the Christian family has an obligation to love one another, like a biological family, and bear in mind that would have included women from lower social groups, as Andy was talking about last week, slaves who were converting to Christianity, and all that ran against the the values of Greco-Roman society. Peter's next value, which he'd like Christians to adopt, is even more countercultural, humility. Be humble, he says. To the Romans, to be humble was to be of a low social status. It was a sign of weakness. But Peter is encouraging it as a virtue in new Christian communities. In today's society, there is such a focus on the individual, and it's easy for us to see how Peter's instructions are still valid for us. It's a small point, too, but all of the times that Peter says you in the text, you do this, you do that, it's a third-person plural, which, you know, I was terrible at grammar at school, so I just... (laughs) But I do understand this. We use it in English when we say you, but it isn't clear if I mean you or you. If we were American, we might say, "You might translate it y'all, yeah. So, with, I, haven't got, I haven't got quite your skills for hat-wearing an American accent, Sandy, I'm sorry. But um, the point is, the instructions are to the whole community to behave in a like-minded way. We are all asked to try and emulate Christ, to be Christ-like, to show familial love, to be compassionate, to be humble. And Peter goes on to say that Christians shouldn't repay evil with evil or abuse, or insult with insult. Which is not to say we just bite our tongues and avoid retaliating. It's much more than that, unfortunately. We must repay insults with a blessing. This is still very much beautiful resistance. In his contemporary culture, Peter is asking the communities not to defend their honour and their reputations. And not only that, not only just don't defend yourself, Offer a blessing to the people who've insulted you, who mean you harm. It's a big ask, both then and now. But of course we know that it reflects the teaching of Jesus himself in Luke's gospel, which weren't written down when Peter was writing his letters. When Jesus had just chosen his 12 disciples, including Peter, he says, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Knowing that doesn't make it any easier, of course. I'm pretty much sure everyone here has has had someone say something unkind to them at some point, or has someone maybe directly insult them. And perhaps you've experienced it directly for your Christian faith. And it's an enormous challenge to us to offer that then as a blessing in person. Remember that Peter is addressing Christians in exile too who may well be receiving insults and abuse just for being Christians. The love... There in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 6, that that Jesus is talking about, loving your enemies, doesn't mean that we must feel an emotional attachment to them. It doesn't mean love like that. It's about acting rightly toward them, regardless of our emotions, regardless of the way we instinctively respond. Doing unto others as we would have them do to us. And it requires enormous self-control, which is, of course, one of the gifts of the spirit that Paul lists in Galatians, self-control. Peter then quotes from a section of Psalm 34 if you're following along which backs up what he said if you want good days and a long life keep your tongues from evil don't practice deceit seek peace and I know Paul's gonna sing some of that for us in a bit but for the next section of this extract we need to bear in mind that Peter is talking to groups who are still an anomaly still a novelty in the wider empire Whilst being compassionate and loving might not stand out too badly, even if humility would have done, they were still a group who, to outsiders, were worshipping a man who'd been executed alongside criminals and who they believed had risen from the dead. And it's quite probable that their neighbours may have perceived that as pretty strange, actually. Even though Roman society was pluralistic and largely quite tolerant, as long as you didn't rock the boat too much, these new Christian church groups were likely to experience some level of derision for their beliefs. Peter is trying to offer them some comfort that even if they do suffer taunts or unpleasantness, if they're doing what's right and what is good, for righteousness, he says, then they are blessed. Again, for us today, these words recall the gospel words. Matthew, this time, chapter 5, in the section of Christ's teaching known as the Beatitudes, very famously, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The challenge that Peter is giving to these communities is for them not to withdraw and live away, which some communities did at that time. The Stoics, you might have heard of, they, they withdrew with their beliefs, separate themselves from society. Peter's saying, no, continue to interact, even if you're insulted for your faith. You still need to meet those insults with blessings. And he tells them not to be afraid and not to hide their faith away, but indeed, in verse 15, to sanctify or revere Christ as Lord in their hearts and be prepared, be ready to give an answer or a defense to everyone about why they have hope in the resurrection. But he says they shouldn't do it in a confrontational way, but with humility, with gentleness and respect, he says. And he tells them to keep their consciences clear, so that if people say malicious things about them or mock them, then they're being mocked for doing the right thing, and the accusers will end up ashamed, not the Christians. Verse 17 is the tricky one. That's often taken away from this important context. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And the really, really important thing here is that God wills doing what is right, God does not will suffering. It is God's will that you should do good, that you should behave rightly, even if your behavior results in suffering, rather than that you should take a bad path. And Peter's trying to reassure his readers, comfort them, not frighten them. Peter himself was a changed man too by the time he was writing this. He himself had taken the easier path, if you like, denying Christ before the crucifixion. Excuse me. So he's talking from his lived experience of knowing which path was right and which path wasn't. And Peter reminds us that Christ then suffered and died to bring us to God. Nothing that he's asking of those communities to clearly defend their hope and their faith in the face of ridicule or insult is coming close to that. But it's very important to acknowledge that now, in the present day, there are people who suffer for being Christian. This photo is from a BBC news story, actually, of uh, Christian persecution around the world. That's genuinely from a a church that's been attacked. And um, in countries like Afghanistan, for example, we don't know how many Christians there even are as a number because they must keep their faith secret. This morning, just before the service, when we were praying, Andy was saying the same thing about Qatar, where obviously the football is about to take place. They can't go around boldly and kindly defending their faith, as Peter suggests, because they'll be killed, arrested and killed. And we know that there are people here in our own community of CCB. Locally here, there are people who have faced persecution and fear in their home countries because of their beliefs. So before we move on to the last sections of this reading, I'd just like to take a moment to pray for those suffering persecution. So if you'd just close your eyes for a moment. Lord God... Your Son, Jesus Christ, suffered and died for us. In his resurrection, he restores life and peace in all creation. Comfort, we pray, all victims of intolerance and those oppressed by their fellow humans. Remember in your kingdom those who have died. Lead the oppressors towards compassion and give hope to the suffering. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now we come to some very difficult to interpret text. This is the bit Luther was really on about in a minute. In verse 19, it says, After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Now, the Anglican Church, broadly, across the world, defines its doctrine, its beliefs, and its practices using the 39 Articles of Faith, which were settled down after the Reformation. And Article 3 tells us, it is to be believed that he went down into hell. And we say it. We've said it this morning. Whenever we recite the Apostles' Creed together in church, we say that Jesus was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. Some scholars believe that what Peter's referring to in this bit, what's sometimes called the harrowing of hell since medieval times, when Jesus is supposed to have preached the gospel to all those who had died before him, so had not had the opportunity to hear the good news, Some people believe, particularly in Orthodox tradition, that Christ's mercy was so great that it would be extended to include everyone who'd already died, even those who, as Peter says, were disobedient in the days of Noah. Others are less comfortable with that interpretation, but like to dwell on the comparison Peter makes between Jesus and Noah, that like Jesus, Noah too told his contemporaries how they could be saved and was ridiculed, but he trusted in God and he was rescued along with his family. The really interesting bit is the comparison Peter makes next, that this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Noah was saved by the very water which had threatened him and his family with death. There's nobody, Noah. Because he trusted in God and he built the ark and the water carried him to safety instead of drowning him. The baptismal water... It's not just a ritual cleansing. That would have been familiar to some of Peter's audience from a Jewish background because ritual washing was a custom and a religious practice. We see that at the wedding at Cana with the jars of water. Baptismal water is not just to clean their bodies from dirt, but as a pledge to God. And some people think that because Jesus died for their sins, that that means they can no longer sin. Everything's always forgiven. And I'm a very warm and fluffy Anglican. So I do like to tell people that God loves you just as you are. And he does. He does. But that doesn't mean that in choosing to follow Christ and in being baptized, we can just do as we please. We have a free pass into heaven, however we behave. Baptism is choosing to follow Jesus, to try and live a Christ-like life. The pledge is the word that Peter uses, a pledge to God, a promise, a covenant, to remind us to live, as Peter describes at the start of this reading, to live rightly. If you're sitting here and you're already baptized, as I suspect most of you are, or if you're yet to make that pledge, this is what Peter is asking us to remember. We are reborn in the waters of baptism into a continuing relationship with God through Christ, who's sitting at his right hand, as we hear at the end of the reading, and that should change the way we live our lives. Amen.